0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark.
1: This is season eight of Office Hours and we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. This is part two of a three-part introduction to the Reformation. In part one, we look briefly at the background of the Reformation in the medieval church. How it set the stage for the Reformation by pushing Holy Scripture to the margins in favor of church authority. And how the mainstream medieval doctrines of justification and salvation obscured the biblical and ancient Christian gospel of salvation freely given to sinners and received through faith alone. And we saw how these changes intended to foster sanctity, holiness, actually ended up producing just the exact opposite, gross immorality and corruption, so great that even the most hardened critics of the church were shocked by what they saw. If you worship or serve in Reformed and Evangelical churches, then you're likely to hear a great deal this year about the Reformation and its 500th anniversary. For some of us, however, it's a lot like other great historical events. The name is familiar, but the particulars are a little vague. Well, What is the Reformation? In our one word, Reformation, we have compressed a great number of things. So it's shorthand, a truly shorthand way to describe a complex of events, layers of events. So let's start on the outside of this ball of twine, as it were, and we'll work toward the middle. The Reformation can be described socioeconomically. That is, it can be seen as coinciding with the move socially away from feudal. Socioeconomic arrangements and toward something like what we would recognize as modern economic arrangements. Instead of trading animals for things, we began to trade coins. Now, coins have been around for a long time, but there was a change in the way economies were being organized about the same time as the Reformation occurred. And scholars have noted the rise of capitalism, fueled in part by the expansion of the European powers into the new world trade routes were changing cities were developing people were moving off of the farm and into cities so that during the reformation some scholars have even observed a difference between urban reformations and rural reformations the old social classes were changing nobles and knights had defended society the clergy and monks had prayed for society and peasants had worked for society But about the same time as the Reformation is beginning, there's also the rise of a middle or a merchant class between the upper class and the very lowest economic classes of society. And those who made up this middle or merchant class began to become literate shopkeepers and traders. So, the Reformation has been described in economic terms. It's also been described in political terms. According to some scholars, the Reformation was a top-down event, a series of moves by social and political elites to secure their position at the expense of the proletariat. That account is almost certainly oversimplified. But it is true that the Reformation was often imposed by civil authorities and others in a top-down fashion. Sometimes it was welcomed by the masses and the middle classes, and sometimes it was opposed. About the same time the Reformation began, we also see the development of what we will come to see later as nation states. People are beginning to develop a consciousness that they are not just members of an international, transcultural, transgeographic church but part of a nation with its own language, its own culture, and its own borders. Politically, there had long been tensions between the various crowns of Europe and the papacy, as the papacy tried to exert control over various territories and nations, and kings sometimes tried to exert control over the church by installing bishops, for example. The behavior of popes, since... At least the 14th century, for example, the Avignon Papacy and other scandals that rocked the late medieval church, had caused people to question whether authority flows from God through the Pope to councils, or whether it flows from God through councils to the Pope. And there were parallel discussions about the structure of authority in civil life as well. There was no question in the minds of most European Christians that and British Christians, whether authority comes from God, but the question was whether it comes from God through, for example, parliaments to kings or through kings to parliaments. So there is a good deal of social upheaval, economic change, and even religious uncertainty leading up to the Reformation. So what the Reformation was depends to some degree on who is telling the story. For example, when Roman Catholics tell the story, the Reformation tends to be described more as a rebellion against well-established authorities. When Protestants tell the story, it, at least in older narratives, tended to be described more in terms of liberation from oppression. Social historians, those who focus on civil and religious institutions, tend to see the Reformation mostly as the result of the sorts of social changes that I've already mentioned. Intellectual historians tend to focus on ideas, and particularly on the theological and philosophical changes that we have already discussed.
0: You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: It's best, however, overall, all things considered, to think that God providentially arranged and used social, political, economic, as well as philosophical and theological changes to help bring about the Reformation. It was a complex, multi-layered movement. One of the most important things that we must know about the Reformation, however, is that it was not a modern event. This is significant because many scholars today describe the Reformation as if it were an early modern episode. To my way of thinking, modernity refers to a period of European, British, and American history that probably began about the middle of the 17th century and ended about 1914 in Europe and arguably around 1968 in the United States. Modernity refers to a certain way of thinking about the world in which man is at the center, As Protagoras, the 5th century B.C. sophist, is supposed to have said, man is the measure of all things. That's certainly the motto of modernity. Man is the measure of all things. In modernity, the human intellect and human sense experience were said to be the measure of what is true and what can be true. Perhaps the most dominant question of the modern age was, has God really said? which, of course, is not a new question at all, is it? The Reformation was not really a modern event at all. The Protestant Reformers believed, every one of them, that God is the measure of all things, that his word is the standard by which things are judged. The question they were asking was not, has God really said, but what has God said? And they looked for the answer to God's Word. They didn't begin with human reason or human sense experience, though they didn't deny that humans can reason or that human sense experience is generally true, but the ultimate authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life, they said, is God's Holy Word, the Bible. The Reformation, then, was a pre-modern event. The Protestants were asking not modern questions with man at the center, but pre-modern questions with God at the center. They utterly rejected the notion of human autonomy with respect to God and His Word. There are several important other qualifiers that we can use to describe the Reformation. The first and most important, maybe, is the term that we throw around, Protestant. Technically, it refers to the Diet of Speyer in 1529, at which the Lutheran or the Evangelical electors, those seven electors in the Holy Roman Empire, protested the edict to end the toleration of the Lutherans or the Protestants. The term, however, has come to refer to all of those who accept Luther's fundamental insights from and about the Word of God. And we can summarize those insights for the purposes of this episode under three headings, Sola Scriptura, sola gratia and sola fide and i'll explain those in just a minute there is another way that we can describe the reformation and that is as a magisterial event both lutherans and reformed were convinced that the state had a significant role to play in the reformation of the church in this respect the reformation was again a pre-modern event or series of events in the modern world, and particularly in the United States, we tend to assume the truth that the state has its role and the church has its role. But relative to the history of the world and relative to the history of the medieval church from the 4th century until the 16th century, that idea was relatively unknown. Virtually everyone in the 16th century, Roman, Lutheran, and Reformed, assumed that that the state was ordained by God to establish a church. Where they did not agree was which church should be established by the state. But there was no question in their minds whether the civil magistrate, the state, should establish, protect, defend a particular church, whether the Roman church, the Lutheran church, or the Reformed. They all agreed that it was the job of the civil magistrate to punish religious heresy. There were radicals, the Anabaptists and others, who sometimes denied the state's role in reforming the church, even though they also sometimes sought to use civil and military power even to bring about their vision of reformation. We should also note that doctrinally, or theologically, the radicals, and most importantly, the Anabaptists, rejected the solas of the Reformation. They were convinced that salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, would lead to impiety. They rejected sola scriptura. They mocked the Reformed and Lutheran ministers for relying on the Bible as the sole authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life. They were convinced that they were receiving continuing revelations from God. They also rejected the Christology of the ecumenical creeds and particularly the Reformed confessions in favor of what the Protestants regarded as a heretical view of Christ's humanity, which the Anabaptists called Christ's celestial flesh. The Reformation then was a civil event, it was a political event, it was an economic event in certain instances, but it was a theological event more than anything else. However important politics were for the Reformation, and they were, the Reformers did and said what they did because they came to believe certain things about the Word and from the Word. They believed that the Bible God's Word is unique and above all other authorities. The Latin phrase for this, which you've already heard in this episode, is sola scriptura. I'll explain what that means right after this.
2: For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the Gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages.
1: Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California
2: there's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the Scriptures seriously, and the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of Scripture in the history of the Church. We are Reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of Scripture for the whole church, and it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us.
0: WSCAL.edu 888 480 8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church.
1: So the first Latin expression, sola scriptura, means according to Scripture alone. Beginning already in the 4th century, after battling with heretics for centuries, heretics who appealed to Scripture, a few of the fathers began to claim the existence of an unwritten apostolic tradition. This idea, through the course of the Middle Ages, took on a life of its own. As new heretical groups appeared and had to be dispatched, the church could appeal to an apostolic tradition rather than wrangling with them over the correct interpretation of Holy Scripture. By the time we get to the 16th century, Scripture had, in some ways unintentionally, but practically and theologically, been pushed to the side. Practically before the Renaissance, the scriptures were not being read by very many people or in very many places in their original languages or in their original context. Typically, scripture as people were encountering it was in a collection of passages that were pulled out of context and formed part of the liturgy of the Mass on a typical Sunday. Christian worship is had come to be not so much organized by Holy Scripture, but rather it became a drama, a visual representation of and reenactment of the life and death of Christ. The Protestants came to agree with the Renaissance humanists that we need to get back to the original sources, chief among them, Holy Scripture, so... They began, with the help of the humanists, to study Scripture in its original languages. All the major Reformers became students of Hebrew and Greek. It was the great-uncle of the Reformer Philip Melanchthon who published one of the earliest Hebrew grammars on the rudiments of Hebrew in 1506. By 1522, Luther was translating the entire New Testament from Greek into German, and he did so in about 11 weeks. In 1527, William Tyndale, after studying with Luther in Wittenberg, published the first-ever English translation of the New Testament out of Greek. In the following years, he and his co-workers would work on the first-ever English translation of the Hebrew Bible as well. The Protestant church was, in the Reformation, a Bible church, Sermons were meant to be expositions of Scripture, and that pattern begins very early. In 1519, in response to the crisis created by the plague in Zurich, Huldrych Zwingli began preaching expository sermons through Scripture rather than following the lectionary, a collection of Bible passages used by the medieval church. The Protestants not only began translating Scripture— and preaching from it, verse by verse, passage by passage, but they also began commenting on it. Luther lectured on Scripture extensively, and his groundbreaking lectures, particularly we think of his lectures on Romans, Psalms, Galatians, and Hebrews. We might also look at his lectures on Genesis, which are a little complicated and later, but these are all truly groundbreaking and significant events in the history of the Protestant Church. In Strasbourg, the Reformed Protestant Martin Bucer was commenting on Scripture and produced, for example, a massive Latin commentary on the Book of Romans. Back in Germany, Philip Melanchthon wrote, commentaries and gave lectures on the New Testament, most importantly, perhaps, Romans, but he also lectured on and produced commentaries on other Pauline epistles. John Kelvin gave lectures on scripture and produced dozens of commentaries, which we have today in English, and which scholars and pastors, including Westminster Seminary, California students, still consult regularly as part of their study of Holy Scripture. When we talk about the Protestant doctrine of Sola Scriptura, we also mean that Scripture became the charter of the Christian faith and the Christian life. We'll devote another episode to this topic in this series, Reformation 500. But it is important for you to know that as the Protestants turn back to Scripture, they look to it for their authority for their teaching not only for what we ought to believe about the christian faith but to determine what laws and what rules the church and other christians could impose on us the medieval church had developed a great number of practices rules and laws for worship, and for daily life that were not grounded in Holy Scripture. And one of the great benefits of the Reformation was to liberate Christians from the tyranny of human opinion and to free them to obey what God had said rather than what people had invented and imposed. The second sola is sola gratia. And by that, we mean that the Protestants had discovered that salvation, deliverance from the wrath to come, acceptance with God, and sanctification in this life, is by God's free favor alone. This definition of grace is in contrast to the medieval view that we considered last time, that grace is a quasi-divine substance, a sort of medicine with which we are infused in the sacraments with which we must cooperate sufficiently in order to be saved finally. As we'll see in Part 3 of this introduction, the Protestants discovered that justification, free acceptance with God, and salvation is by grace alone. And by grace, as I mentioned, they understood Scripture to be referring to God's favor, not to medicine or stuff with which we are being infused and on which we must capitalize and with which we must cooperate in order to possibly one day be accepted by God and delivered from divine wrath.
0: You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: The third sola is sola fide, by faith alone. In the medieval church, Faith was said to include trusting in Christ, but it was more than that. The great 13th century theologian Thomas Aquinas had taught that faith is, as he put it, formed by love. By that, he meant that when Paul says in Romans 5.5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, it means that God has endued the sacraments with medicinal grace, with the Holy Spirit. And through the sacraments, the Spirit and grace are poured forth into us literally, and it's up to us to cooperate unto final salvation. So, for the medievals and ultimately for Rome, faith is not resting in the finished work of Christ and in the person of Christ. Faith is really a shorthand way of talking about sanctification, that is, what is taking place within us, and our obedience or our cooperation with grace. Of course, this system, the Roman system, Virtually destroyed any possibility of Christian assurance, the notion that one may have confidence that he belongs, both body and soul, in this life and in the next, to Jesus Christ. Indeed, the medieval church had come to believe that assurance was, at best, a sort of second blessing. Generally, it was said to be presumptuous for a Christian to say that he knew that he was right with God and that he was saved. No, according to the medievals and later according to Rome, justification and salvation are really just ways of talking about sanctification, which is a process. The medieval church taught what we might call progressive justification or progressive salvation. It's initiated in this life, but ordinarily in this life, it is never completed. Along with this doctrine of progressive justification and salvation, the medieval theologians had taught that we, you and I, need to accumulate merit, and they distinguished two kinds of merit, condign merit, which is wrought in us by the Spirit and our cooperation with grace, and congruent merit, whereby God was said to have agreed to receive our best works and to treat them as if they were really perfect, even though they are not condign merit and congruent. Think of condign merit as that which has inherent worth, condignity, and congruent merit is that whereby God has agreed to accept them. The Protestants, both Reformed and Lutheran, rejected the notion that we sinners can accumulate condign or congruent merit. The only merits, they said, that exist in the world are those that Jesus earned for us which are imputed or credited or reckoned to us by God's grace alone and received through faith alone, resting, receiving, trusting in Christ. There were other insights that are closely related to these, and we'll look at them in part three as we consider the life and teaching of Martin Luther in detail. But these three, sola scriptura, Sola Gratia and Sola Fide were foundational to the Protestant Reformation and were accepted by all of the Protestants, both Lutheran and Reformed. The Reformation was also an ecclesiastical event. We tend to talk about Luther and Calvin and the others as theologians, and they were that, but they were part of the formation of ecclesiastical, that is, churchly, bodies. To be sure, as we read Luther and the other Reformers in their own context, The idea that they were part of distinct churches developed gradually over a period of time. So, when we talk about the Lutheran and the Reformed, to some degree, we're reading back into the 16th century distinctions that only developed gradually, that didn't exist right away. Both the Reformed and the Lutheran saw themselves as part of one evangelical Protestant church. Still, looking back now, we can see that there were, by the 1540s and 50s, two great schools of thought and two distinct churches in the Reformation, the Lutheran and the Reformed. As we'll see in the next episode, Luther became a Protestant over a period of time from about 1513 to 1521. The Reformed Reformation has its roots in Luther, but it also draws from the Zurich reformer, Huldrych Zwingli, and his successor, Heinrich Bullinger. It draws from Martin Buzer and John Calvin and his student, John Knox, his successor, Theodore Beza, and many others. The relations between these two traditions are complicated, but there can be little doubt that they are closely related. In the 19th and 20th centuries, particularly in North America, there has been a story told about the Reformation that the Reformed churches began with Zwingli independent of Luther, as if Luther and Zwingli and the Lutheran and Reformed churches were two trains on parallel tracks. That story is almost certainly false. There is little doubt that Zwingli was deeply influenced by Luther, even as he rejected some of what Luther said and criticized him heavily, even as Luther was criticizing Zwingli. Calvin was not shy at all in acknowledging his debt to Luther. He spoke of him in the highest possible terms, calling him an apostle, and rarely criticized Luther. Even though he came to have significant differences with Luther over the nature of baptism, the Lord's Supper, the two natures of Christ, how the Second Commandment regulates public worship, just to name a few. When we look at the way the Reformed described their own history in the 16th and 17th centuries, they regularly acknowledged their debt to Luther. The Reformation was a complex event. There are social and political aspects, there are economic and institutional aspects, but at bottom, the Reformation was a religious and theological event, driven by a strong desire by the Protestants to recover the centrality and unique sole authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life in the Word of God. In Scripture, as they read it afresh, in the original languages, they did not find in it much that the late medieval church had come to assume and to believe, and to practice. They found that God has loved his people from all eternity and freely elected them to new life and to true faith in Jesus Christ. They found that grace is not a medicine infused into us, but it is God's favor toward us in Christ. They found that the basis of our salvation is not what is done in us by grace or what we do in cooperation with grace, but rather what Christ has done for us and is imputed to us. They found that Paul taught that the righteous shall live by faith alone, that is, by trusting in Christ, confidence in his gospel, and in his person. The Reformation was a religious movement. It was a theological movement shaped by the Word of God. And nowhere is that reality more clear than in the person and life of Martin Luther. And we'll close this mini-series next time by looking at him.
0: Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.